She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. Millennium, season one. Episode seven, Blood Relatives. This episode was filmed on location in British Columbia, Canada, and originally aired on Friday, December 6th, 1996 at 9 p.m. In the episode... When the body of a mother mourning her recently deceased son is found mutilated in the grave he was to be buried in the next day, Bletcher brings Frank and Catherine in to work both sides of the case and deal with the dead and surviving victims of the crime. It was written by Chip Johannesson and directed by Jim Charleston. This is the first of 13 episodes Johannesson will write or co-write. He will do four in season one, three in season two, and six in season three. He's also either a producer, co-producer, consulting producer, or executive producer on all 67 episodes. So wow. okay. he was in there doing some producing. He was producing, yeah. <laughs> he was producing, whatever that means. He's productive. Yeah, there you go. He'll co-write one episode of The X-Files in season seven, which is the return of Donnie Faster. Woo, Donnie Faster! <laughs> And he's written and produced for Beverly Hills 90210, Dark Angel, Empire, Dexter, 24, and Homeland. Wow. Okay. Yeah. This is the first of two episodes that Charleston will direct. The next is season one, episode nine. He's also the director of four episodes of The X-Files, including Avatar in season three and Toliko, Synchrony, and Elegy in season four. Succubus! Us. yeah wow we got a donnie faster connection and succubus yeah two sides of my coin because we know i'm not a fan of donnie faster but man i love that succubus episode yeah so, and i don't remember what synchrony or elegy are yet so we'll, when we get to them, i think we got, i don't think we got to them so we have not gotten to them yet so they are later in yeah. the season yeah so we're at forest glen cemetery in seattle washington and mourners are leaving a nighttime funeral service and a figure emerges from behind a tombstone and enters the building. He looks at a memorial notice, and inside is a photograph of a young man in a football jersey, and it reads, In Loving Memory, Jeffrey Allen Court, 1976-1996, survived by his loving mother, Geraldine, father, Charles, and sister, Greer, and many school friends and teammates from the football team. Jeffrey was a freshman at WSU. Born November 12th, 1976, Seattle, Washington. Passed away November 15th, 1996, Seattle, Washington. At least he made his birthday. But yeah. Yeah. WSU, obviously, Washington State University. So, although they don't specify the campus, which is weird. Because you guys have like, what, five or six campuses for Washington State, I think? I thought it was only two, but I don't know. I've never gone to WSU. I, don't know. I saw it when I looked it up. I saw two. The, I've, the official site says five, but then I saw a listing for six as well. So I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyway. I don't know. I never went to WSU, so I don't know. Okay. I will say, I think maybe his birthday kind of helped exacerbate his death or at least helped lead to it, probably. <laughs> Well, we'll actually find out later. It was it may have been his birthday, but it was also football related. Yeah, that's what so. I mean. It might have been like both, like woo. So yeah. anyway, yeah. Also, I can't. I don't know. I I if you're into that, I get it. I mean, we're totally interrupting the teaser here, but so be it. Like your 
like the final photo people see of you is like you in your football jersey like well he didn't pick it that wasn't him no that's even that almost makes it worse like you don't have any better photo of your son and like him and his foot like his football card photo basically like okay. i mean that he was a proud football player i guess that's what meant a lot to him right so yeah i'm just not a fan of sports so anyway yeah that's gonna tinge my opinion so anyway as the person is reading said notice a young woman approaches and introduces herself as greer jeff's sister so the young man introduces himself as ray bell and says he was a friend of jeff's at wsu and she was like, oh, you just missed all your classmates. He was like, oh, yeah, I, I saw them as they were heading out. We're going to meet up later. And in the course of the discussion, he says that Jeff was always talking about his family. So she asked if he could tell her mother that. She's really broken up right now. So then we see that Ray is looking at Jeff in his coffin. He's standing there for a while. And then he goes over to Mrs. Court and he tells her how dedicated Jeff was to his family. And she stands and weeps and embraces Ray. And he tells her that it'll be fine. And he hugs her and repeatedly tells her that it will be okay. And like caresses her. And he seems to be almost like feeding off of some like empathic connection somehow. It's kind of, it's kind of creepy. Because we focus on him like focusing on her. And it's kind of like a little weird. Um, At first I thought he was going to kiss her. Because his mouth gets closer and closer to her shoulder. I thought he was going to kiss her shoulder, which is kind of creeping me out. Anyway. Yeah, I thought so, too. I really yeah. thought he was going to go in for like, like some liquor weird or something. So, yeah, yeah. 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 A little. Ooh. Anyway. So later, Mrs. Court is alone in the viewing room and the funeral director comes out and tells her he hates to do this, but it will be a beautiful ceremony tomorrow and she should go home and get some rest. So she leaves and she's holding a calla lily. And she walks through the graveyard and she approaches the prepared grave because it's already been dug, you know, and it's all prepared for them to put the coffin in tomorrow. And she stands over it and then she kind of like solemnly tosses a lily into it and she starts to turn to leave and then hands reach out from the grave and grab her by the ankles. And she's like, ah, and she falls down and she's screaming and they pull her into the grave and she's clawing at the earth. And then it's the credits. And when those end, we get an epigraph on this one again. This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it. Luke eleven twenty nine. So much like last episode, there is no exact match for this particular translation. The closest is the New American Standard Bible, the 1995 revision. As crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah. So this one's only one word off. So it's close enough, I guess. So Yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah. I know you're not interested in the Bible. So. <laughs> it's not that I'm not interested in it. It's just, I mean, I do find it fascinating in certain contexts, and I am interested in like, the concept of faith and how people believe and like yeah i think know, this, I get for me, it, this but... isn't so much a bible thing even though i did mention last time and i'm gonna start as soon as it arrives i'm going actually going to go with the new king james version yeah it has enough of that it's not shakespeare but still has some of that like weight and grandeur to it so i think i decided i'm gonna go with that one after looking at all the different versions 
But it's not so much the Bible itself that I find interesting on this. It's more of the fact that like with the Bible, like people quote the Bible so often are very like, you know, like scripture and verse kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they're using that here to say something. And yet very often they're not actually using it either in the way it's intended or they're kind of adjusting it to make it have a different feel. And I think uh. I find that interesting because they're like, they're changing words to make it feel something, but they're trying to make it feel something if you're only seeing that section of the quote, as opposed to taking the quote in context. And so to me, that is interesting because again, like I'm, there are probably more than that, but like the thing I'm using, there are like 54 different translations of the Bible that I'm using into English, right? I'm only looking at English ones because that's what I'm speaking. And so they're all, you know, slightly different word choice, that kind of thing. And then I'm just trying to find matches. And like a lot of times it doesn't match any of them. So they're obviously like taking this quote from somewhere. I don't know which version they're using. And then they're like, let's let's tweak it to make it sound the way we want it to sound. And so I find that interesting. So Yeah, that is interesting. And it's not so much that I'm not interested in the Bible as I don't have a good context for it or like. I'm not familiar with it, right? Like I didn't go to church very often as a kid. I sometimes went with my aunt and cousins, but like, you know, sometimes do Christmas mass, like midnight mass or whatever. But like, I just, to me, like, it's not something I'm overly familiar with. So it just feels like I don't have any real connection to it or nor do I know any of these passages or have them outside of TV. You don't, no. And I yeah. just, you know, for me, I'm just like, oh. And that, and that doesn't say anything about you in particular. I, I, I was, we were talking about this on another episode. And I think, I think, I hope that we portray that like we are, we're curious individuals. Like, well, like when we talked about the whole checkoff gun thing. And it was like, I thought it meant one thing. You told me it meant something else. And so I was like, oh, well, I trust Tori. I'll believe her. <laughs> and then it turned out you were wrong, right? And it wasn't yes. like at first I wasn't like, is she messing with me? And like, is she is she spoofing me? Like, is she just trying to do that to see if I would believe it? Right. Cause since I was a conspiracy dude. But then, like, even though I trusted you, I was like, oh crap, I never knew that. That's cool. I then went and looked. Like, you know, because one, I was just trying to find like, oh, well, what episode was that in that we talked about where like Chekhov has the gun and then he uses it kind of thing where that came from. And then when I was in the course of looking at that, I realized it was incorrect and then it was totally like a flip. But it was like, because I didn't just take it at like face value. I like was interested and I went and looked further. And I think that's important for people to not, you know, especially in the internet age is like, don't just read something and take it for granted. So you and I are going to make mistakes. Like don't take it for for granted either. But, no 100 and that was literally just something that probably got jumbled up in my head and so i was confused and so yeah i was confused so that was what i had morphed it into i was like was she punking me she punked me god damn it she punked me. She punked <laughs> i me wish i had punked podcast. you i was just straight up wrong <laughs> but I, I should have lied and been like no that was a, a test or a prank um because i'm so good at pranks anyway but yeah, the truth is out there, people. Just, you know, look for it. Yeah. At the same time, I don't want to be like the QAnon people be like, do your own research because like you have to trust people at the same time. But like, you know, look for well, it's sort of like we talk about on the so. X-Files, right? Like trust no one, but like you do actually have to trust someone at some point or you will never get yeah. anywhere. 
You can't just not trust yeah. anybody ever. Why should I listen to this person who's an expert in this field? I did my own research. Well, you should probably listen to them and you can do your own research to see, but like you also need to wait research, right? Like you looking shit up on the internet versus someone who has like multiple degrees in something, you know, maybe wait that a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah. One hundred percent. Yes. Anyway, and, for, off topic, and just so. for the record, I'm not like anti-religion. I don't think that religion is bad. I think that faith plays an important role for a lot of people. It's just it's not something that I have in my life, really. So it's just something that I'm slightly disconnected from. It's not like I think it's awful or bad or not good. I understand that it's important to a lot of people. And I understand why it just doesn't play that role for me. Yeah. So. Also, behind the scenes, I have recently started listening to Knowledge Fight podcast, which is about Alex Jones. And I've only been listening for about two weeks and I've already listened to about a hundred episodes. Oh my and gosh. So I am just, yeah, it's just in my head about just how awful it is that just people like to will just take something someone says and not like do any research at all to find out that they're just making shit up. So. But they did do their research. <laughs> they read it on Reddit. And that means that it's true. They read oftentimes they read the headline on Reddit and didn't That's even look true. At the story. And not the article or the story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Or sometimes no, they just make shit up. So yeah, but it's just, yeah, so that's mainlining in my head too. So also if I start to channel Jordan a little bit, just bear with me. I'll try not to start just <laughs> randomly screaming into the mic because I'm Please don't. to handle it. So <laughs> not super into screaming. So let's Dad, not do that. Dad, Dad. So no, anyway. <laughs> but yeah. So then we're at the Seattle Public Safety Building and we get some really nice like establishing shots of what I'm pretty sure is Seattle. That building looks extremely familiar. So I think that is in fact. Okay. Um, Seattle B-roll but anyway it's pouring rain because that's the only weather we get in Seattle that or sun um, you get you get rain or you no get sun we never see it. the sun we haven't seen well, the sun no we do we see years. the sun at the yellow house a lot so although we have seen that's... pouring rain at the yellow house at least once <laughs> yeah that's true. anyway when creeper jack who thankfully hasn't reappeared was all like they took your daughter <laughs> to the hospital so so inside Bletcher is standing near an elevator and it opens and Catherine Black comes out and oh. he thanks her for coming and he briefs her on the case. So this is nice. It's Catherine. It's not Frank. That's kind of a Whoa, twist. It's like gender swap millennium. Okay. He tells her that the son died three days ago and then the mother was found murdered after the wake. They can't get anything out of the father because he won't stop yelling at them. And Catherine tells Bletcher to try and imagine what he must be going through. And Bletcher says he does. It's just not very helpful. Yeah. He tells her he knows that he's been skeptical of victim services in the past, but, and she, he kind of trails off and she's like, oh, you know, I'll do whatever I can. So Catherine goes into the interrogation room where Mr. Court and Greer are waiting and he's standing and he's fuming and Greer is seated and she's obviously upset. And Mr. Court asks who she is. And so she introduces herself and he's like, oh, so you're like a counselor. And she's like, well, you know, that's part of what I do. And he's just like, get that lieutenant back in here. And he's like angry again. And Greer, like futilely, is like, dad, come on, you know, let's stop. And Catherine says that Lieutenant Bletcher asked her to speak with him. And Mr. Court says he wants to see his wife. And Catherine realized that he hasn't been able to claim or even see the body. So this changes things and the mood softens a little and they're able to talk because she can kind of understand that where he's coming from and why he's so upset. Yeah. Greer Court is played by Nicole Parker. She is the actress we know as Stoner Chick in War of the Copper Phages, which is X Files season three, episode 12, and in Quagmire, which is season three, episode 22. Mm -hmm. 
So we won't see her again in the X-Files until 2016 in the X-Files season 10. So yeah. while to go before she, she does get to back. act a little bit more in this episode, which is nice. Yeah. So. She, yeah. We, it's funny because she looked really familiar to me and it did not click in my head that that's who she was. And then when I read it, I was like, her oh. hair is not all frizzed out, like super like stonery. So that's yeah. thing I think. Yeah. But she actually gets to act instead of just kind of yeah, being there and reciting yeah. a few lines. So it was nice. And Charles Court is played by Bob Morrissey. He played Dr. Simon Bruin in the X-Files season four, episode three, Toliko. Mm-hmm. He has one more appearance in both the X-Files and Millennium in seasons five and three, respectively. So we will see him yeah, again. We will. So then Catherine's in Bletcher's office and she tells him that he needs to let Mr. Court see his wife's body. And Bletcher's like, it's kind of out of my hands. And also she was cut up really bad. Like he doesn't want to see his wife like that. And she basically explains like, it's not going to be real to him until he gets to see the body. So that's really important. And he's just like, well, the evidence is all under wraps. Like it's not something we can just have people coming in and out and looking at. And she's like, well, then don't expect any help from him. And Bletcher's like, well, I could use anybody's help. And realizing that Bletcher is in a bind, she says maybe she shouldn't have been the one who answered the phone when he called their house this morning. Oh. So maybe he should have called Frank. Maybe he should have called Frank. Or he could have called both of them. Yeah. I really like that this episode features Catherine and her job. I thought that was kind of neat and kind of a good twist. And also it's kind of cool that like they even called her in first. They're like, hey, we're having a problem with these victims maybe you can come in and help so i thought it was neat to get more of her and have her kind of actively involved in a case yeah she's pretty deep into her job too because she just barely got it not too long ago yeah i guess she just has a lot of history with that kind of job so yeah well i think she had some experience in dc doing the same thing so yeah so that's good so frank and bletcher and gable house are at the crime scene and there is a nice convenient ladder near the grave so frank climbs down into the grave and Butcher is like, well, we've taken footprints and the body was kind of covered up with stuff. And so we've gathered a bunch of the soil to search for hair and fiber. And then Frank finds part of a cow lily and it triggers a flash of the slashing and screaming and blood. So then Peter Watts arrives and he's standing at the edge of the grave and Frank looks up at him and has another flash of the killer standing at the edge of the grave and tossing the lily down into the grave. So spoiler, not that Millennium is like super big on hiding who the killer is a lot of the time, but if you freeze frame this, you will see who the killer is and who the killer is not. So you will know. So just be aware of that. Anyway, Peter says there wasn't much to gain from the body. It looks like she didn't have long to put up a fight. And then the four of them are walking through the graveyard afterwards and Frank asks about the sun. And Bletcher tells him it's a run-of-the-mill tragedy. Star running back celebrates a big win with a blood alcohol of 2.7 and hits a tree at 60 miles per hour. So he was alone and no one else was in the car or hurt. So Bletcher's kind of telling me he doesn't think the son's death had anything to do with the mother's murder. It was a random overkill opportunity crime. And that's why he called in Frank. Right. But Frank stops and tells him the killer knew who she was. And Bletcher doubts that a housewife would make enemies like that. And Frank says it wasn't about her. The killer's rage is directed at someone else. Peter agrees. He says the wounds were brutal, but impersonal and clustered away from the face. And so Giebel House is like, so he knew who she was, but it wasn't about her. 
and he sliced her up, but it wasn't directed at her. And Butcher just kind of gives him a look. And Giba House is like, hey, I'm just trying to keep up. So <laughs> Peter smiles and Bletcher asks Frank if he wants to see the body. And Frank is like, no, the boys. So he doesn't want to see the wife's body because Peter's already taking care of that. Frank wants to see the boy's body, the son. Mm-hmm. So, so this is Giba House's third appearance. And we've really not talked about him at all. He'll have 16 appearances altogether. So he's definitely a recurring character. He has eight this season six in season two, and then two in season three. He is played by Stephen James Lang. And to me, he has a vibe of like an upscale, like Harvey Bullock, like not as grungy kind of thing, that kind of vibe from like Batman. Like he's kind of like, you know, that kind of like, not slovenly, but just kind of like, he's like, he's like, I don't want to say the big dumb cop, but like he is kind of like, but I like this because in this episode in particular, I think maybe they're trying to figure out what to do with him. Yeah. They're kind of using him a little bit, almost like comedic. Like he's kind of given a little bit of comedy action to the thing. Like he's constantly like, oh, like what? And then people like reflect back on him to give information kind of thing. But like, it's not like he's being like, he's not like butting heads. Like earlier on, he was kind of always like almost antagonistic to like Frank and like Frank's opinions and that kind of thing. But now it's whether he's softening to that or they're just trying to figure out how to use him. He's kind of almost not like comedy relief but he's kind of like you're like oh Gable house you crack me up kind of thing <laughs> so yeah he's become he's becoming kind of like a big lovable dude is what he's becoming sort of yeah, so, yeah yeah totally and i agree i think they maybe just didn't know what to do with him and realized that having someone be antagonistic to frank all the time wasn't going to work and yeah. so they're like okay well let's just make him kind of funny and maybe the one who's a little slower on the uptake or whatever so he can be asking the questions and they have someone to explain things to yeah so the majority of his screen credits are actually from millennium like 16 out of his 26 screen credits on imdb are millennium Uh, with the exception of two appearances in the 2000 version of the series the fugitive that's it everything else is just like a one-off um his last credited role in imdb is actually an uncredited role strangely enough and that was in 2007 so okay didn't do a lot i couldn't really find anything about him i don't know if he's still alive like what's going on so his last uncredited role is actually man with blow up doll so oh interesting um, yeah but anyway well, maybe actually, he just got tired of actually I mean, it's old is... man with blow up doll so oh, yeah acting but... super brutal and like you can have a really good run on a show and then just not get anything else and so i think it's just one of those careers where people do it for a while and maybe even have some success, but then just decide that it's not the hamster wheel they want to be running on anymore and give up and yeah. go do something else. So. Just fine. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe he's like doing community theater and. Retired. Yeah. Maybe he's doing community theater no. and retired or working some part-time job somewhere. Maybe he works in a bookstore. I don't know. Yeah, has like a bookstore cat. He pets all the time. And <laughs> yeah. He's, he's kind of becoming that likable lug kind of guy yeah for sure yeah so he is yeah so then frank and bletcher are in the viewing room of the funeral home so i guess maybe Gable house and peter went somewhere else because it's only frank and bletcher now and mr court and greer are seated in pews and they're talking to the funeral director and mr court is like immediately antagonistic with bletcher but then bletcher like apologizes to them and he introduces frank and frank sits in the pew behind him and he gives Mr. Court his condolences for his loss. And then Court turns and says, he just wants to find out who did this to his wife. And Frank says, he'd like to talk to him about that when he's ready. 
So Court and Greer kind of look at each other a little bit, and then he says that they're ready now. And so Frank asks about the service. Were there any strangers? And Mr. Court says, like, well, like, you know, there were a lot of people, and like all his college friends. We didn't know a lot of them, but beyond that, and then Greer is like, Dad, there was this guy, Ray Bell, and he showed up after all the others had left. And then she says that she introduced him to her mother. And then she begins to cry because oh. she realizes, like, maybe this is, you know, like she may have been inadvertently involved in her mother's death. So, whew, man. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah. So then Jeff Court's coffin is rolled out and they open it. And Frank is asking, like, how was Ray Bell standing in front of the body? So Greer kind of gets up and shows him. But it's obviously uncomfortable. I mean, the whole situation, like her mom, and then obviously, like, you know, her brother's dead body is right there. Like, so she tries, mm -hmm. she kind of like shows him and then tries to sit down again. But like Frank stops her and it's like, I know this is difficult, but we need to look for anything that is different, something that has been added or something that is missing. And then she realizes his pin is missing. Someone stole his team pin. Oh, bastards. Yeah. <laughs> Bastard, I guess it's probably one person, but yeah. So then we're at the Dibstall Romance Center in Seattle and we see Ray Bell and he opens a cigar box and he has half a dozen or so items inside. We see some cufflinks, a pocket watch and a football shaped pin. Mm. Wonder where he got that. So he futzes with the pin in front of a mirror and he's like, you know, almost putting it on his shirt. And then in the reflection, we see a man appear in the doorway and he tells Ray that he broke curfew last night. Ray asks when people stop knocking and he puts the football pin on the collar of his sweater. And the man's like, did you hear what I said? And Ray turns around and he apologizes. And the man says, that's your problem. All you do is apologize. But who takes care of him and who puts their butt on the line by checking him in when he's not actually there? And Ray apologizes again. And he says, you know, I got hungry. So I went out for some food. It's not a big deal. And the man grabs his face and he says, I know where you go and what you do. And Ray knocks the man's hand away and the man flicks at the football pin. And he's like, where did that come from? And Ray's like, someone gave it to me. And he like starts to pull away. And the man's like, no one gave you anything. And he's like, why do you bother doing what you're doing? And like, you know, he doesn't really answer. And he's like, well, you're going to be back by lights out tonight or that's it. I'm not covering for you anymore. Oh, so. Yeah. Hmm. So then we see Catherine and she's reading a bedtime story to Jordan in Frank and Catherine's bed. And Frank enters, and Benny gets up and greets Frank, and he leaves <gasps> the room. So, Benny! Yay! Benny. yay <laughs> yeah, we cute. mentioned how Benny seemed to be missing, so Benny is back. Yes, Benny's back. Yay. Anyway, Catherine looks up, having finished the story, to reveal that Jordan is sound asleep in her lap. So, she tells him that Jordan wanted to stay up to wait for him, but obviously she fell asleep. So, mm -hmm. I do. I got the vibe. I was so happy to see Benny again, because we just mentioned that, like, last episode... And I've been thinking about it in a couple episodes. Like, where's Benny? What happened to Benny? We haven't seen Benny. So are you just going to write Benny out of the show and pretend he didn't exist? But no, there's Benny. Yay. But I also got the vibe of like, Benny was like, oh, shit, Frank's home. I got to get off the bed. I'm going to leave. Bye. So that is their <laughs> bed. So <laughs> anyway. So Frank and Catherine are coming downstairs and Frank is carrying Jordan. And he asked her how the courts are. And she says that she doesn't know how to help them understand what's going on. Their son is dead. The mom is butchered like job and frank says that job endured she says she expects the collapse after they're finally allowed to see mrs court tomorrow and then she asks if there's anything to tell them and frank says to tell them they're still looking 
So Frank lays Jordan down in her bed, which means that Jordan's bed is downstairs, which uh-huh. to me, but anyway. Well, a lot of these old houses there. in Seattle, and this is just, you know, here's some Seattle real estate knowledge for you because I look at these houses all the time as part of my job. A lot of the old houses in Seattle will have like one or two bedrooms downstairs and then they'll have an upstairs that's like the primary bedroom and a bathroom. And that's like all that's upstairs. So this house looks bigger from the outside. So it's hard to believe that's the case, but that is the actual yeah. architecture of a lot of them. It just so seems I don't weird know. that their their like four or five-year-old daughter would have a bedroom downstairs and then they're all the way upstairs. That just seems weird to me. Yeah. Anyway. I, I mean, I guess you got to work with the layout of your house. And I haven't been got, paying but... attention to like when Jordan was having nightmares and coming to stay with them if she was going upstairs or if she was just coming down the hall. So I don't know if her bedroom has always been downstairs. I, th- I got the impression it was upstairs, painting. but I don't know if I just imagined that too. So I don't yeah, know. maybe they just needed that for the scene for them to have some place to go while they were talking. I'm not sure. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So Frank lays Jordan down in her bed and then Catherine says she doesn't want to put any more pressure on him. And he says that they are why he's able to do what he does. The two of them. The pressure comes from outside, from the depravity. And so Jordan is in bed and she's got tucked in. And then she's kind of half, she's not faking the sleep, but she's kind of half asleep. And she's like, hi, daddy. And he's like, hi, sweetheart. And he gives her a kiss on the head. And then she's still half asleep. And she's like, what's pravity? <laughs> and both and Frank kind of just go like, oh, fuck. Like, they just have to look on their face. Like, oh, damn it. So, yeah. <laughs> I didn't have this thought because they're carrying Jordan downstairs. And Catherine's all like, oh, the son dead and the mom butchered. And I'm like, hey, want to be careful. Jordan might not be completely asleep. She might be hearing everything guys are saying. So, or she's going to have some really weird <laughs> dreams. I don't know. Yeah. I also thought it's weird that I didn't think about it during the episode. I thought about it in this episode. But last episode, I am also surprised that Job never came up in the last episode. Oh, yeah. Because Calloway like loses his family and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, you know, the trials of Job. And so I was kind of like, it comes up here just kind of as an aside. But then I was like, oh, like we talked about a little bit why, like how they never brought Satan up, like him trying to kill his faith and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, maybe Satan actually is part of the faith. And so maybe that would be why. But like, I am surprised that Job never came up. That's the whole thing about Job, right? He's like, he keeps yeah. his faith despite all the things that happened to him and so in a way Callaway was kind of doing that too although he kind of reacted a little differently than Job did. yeah just but, a little um, even I know the yeah. story of Job by the way yeah <laughs> yeah so anyway sometimes you get ideas from one episode from another episode yeah so yeah so we left off with Frank and Catherine just going like oh god damn it because now they have to you know, creeping in creeping in and then we see Ray Bell in bed and lights out, right? So it's dark, but he's looking at a newspaper with a flashlight. And we see that he's looking at the obituary page, scanning the obituaries. Hmm. Looking for another funeral to go to. And it's commercial. Yep. So I guess a bunch of people died because there's an obituary page. So <laughs> well, technically, yes. <laughs> So at the police station, Frank and Bletcher are looking at a newspaper and Frank points out Jeff Court's obit from two days ago. And elsewhere on the page is a story with the headline, Ray Bell sets record at Sammamish Lake. And we see a photograph of a fisherman 
who is not the young man we've seen. And he's holding a fish with the caption that says Ray Bell sets record and wins Derby. So, uh, hmm. Frank says the obit is his starting point. And Giebelhaus comes over and is like, so he just picks one out of the paper and shows up. And Bletcher's like, why would anyone go to a funeral? They don't have to. (laughs) I mean, honestly, I feel that really hard. Why would you? And Giebelhaus like, maybe he wants to watch people suffer. And Frank's like, well, he didn't watch. He participated. And Bletcher's like, did you get all that just from an obit? And Frank's like, no, from the lapel pin. He takes souvenirs. His performance with Mrs. Court was polished. He's done this before. Fletcher says if he'd done something like what happened last night before, they'd have heard about it. And Frank says last night he crossed over into murder, possibly for the first time. That means it will be easier for him next time. Yes. And it's been a long time since I got to do this, but obviously that could not have been last night. It had to have been at least two nights ago. Yes, you're right. Because she was killed at night. And then they're at the gravesite, and then it's nighttime. He's putting her to bed. It's the next day, so it had to have been two days ago, which means the obit had to have been more than two days ago, also. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So we get a little, oh, little, 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 little bit of a time. time compression here. And, oh. and at first, I thought it was just Bletcher misspeaking, but then Frank also says, "No, last night he crossed over into murder." So it's a script thing. So they, yeah, they messed that up. So whoops. Bam! Again, Nick missed his calling as a script supervisor. He would have been awesome at that job. <laughs> Seriously, like I can't type he... for shit. These notes are horrible. Tori and I are trying to read them, but <laughs> um, script supervisor, yeah, yeah, no, you got it. You're on top of things, so you would rock it. So then we see a large service in the city is letting out and people are getting into cars and heading to a gathering elsewhere. And we see Ray Bell, quote unquote, who we now know is not really Ray Bell. Mm-hmm. Or very coincidental. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that would be a big coincidence. And he makes his way into a vehicle and rides along. And there's a young woman getting into another vehicle and she notices him and she kind of watches him for a while. She probably doesn't recognize him so she's like who's this guy and we see that the gathering is taking place at what basically is a mansion it's it's a mansion it is, yeah. it's not even like a, a mini mansion or like one of those like no it's super like yeah like fancy carpeted stairwell with curved and yeah it's yeah, yeah the freaking mansion it's, yeah it's a huge mansion and people mingle and you know are kind of talking and we see ray make his way upstairs and he's in a bedroom and he's looking at stuff on the dresser and then he opens the top dresser drawer and the young woman who is watching him earlier opens the door and he hears the door open so he tries to like surreptitiously like close the drawer because it's not open super far so he kind of like tries to push it in and then he immediately like puts on a show of tears he just starts crying and the young woman is like oh i'm so sorry uh, I thought, I don't know what I thought. Are you okay? And so he sits on the bed, apparently grief-stricken, and she introduces herself as Tina. She was a friend of David's from college. And he tells her his name is Eric. Oh. And she's like, 
oh, you must have known David from around here. And he's like, since fourth grade. And so they're just like, oh, you have to tell me what he was like when he was younger. And so they talk for a bit. And then he finally says he needs to go. And she's like, well, you know, I was actually planning on leaving. Can I give you a ride? And he's like, yeah, that'd be nice. And I can show you where me and David used to fish. And she's like, David fishing? You've got to be kidding. So she's, you know, she's in. She's like, wow, I never knew that side of David before. Probably because that side of David did not exist. But anyway. Yeah. Also, (laughs) super suspicious. Let me show you a place where we used to fish. which is probably like away from people. Yeah. Mm. Super secluded. Probably very private. Also, your first instinct was right, Tina. Like you Mm -hmm. were, because when she opens the door, you can tell she's like thinking like she's caught him doing something he shouldn't be doing. But then he like starts his little play acting and she's like, oh, just like totally like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you were so upset. So, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, she Mm. was very correct. And yeah, unfortunately, she buys the act. Yeah. So we see Eric, formerly Ray Bell, and he's skipping stones or he's trying to. And he tells Tina that David could really skip stones. And she begins to cry and he apologizes. And she's like, I just can't believe he's gone. And she hugs Eric and he like they have that long hug. And again, he holds her very close and he kind of puts his mouth near her neck. Mm. And it's it's very weird. Like he's smelling her hair or possibly going to like bite her hair. I don't know. It's <laughs> Yeah. And he's constantly stroking her head and it's like, it'll be OK. It'll be OK. It'll be OK. Yeah. yeah. So Tina, again, her instincts are very good and she realizes something is off and she pulls away. And he apologizes again, and he's like, I'll leave you alone for a while, and he walks off. And she stands at the edge of the water, and she throws a stone in, and then suddenly she's hit from behind, and she's knocked into the water. And we see her underwater, and her assailant grabs her back up from the water and possibly hits her in the face. It's not really clear. And she falls back into the water, and there's blood flowing from her mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah. Yeah, it's very brutal. Yeah. So EMTs arrive at the lake, and Bletcher is there with Giebelhaus, and they're talking to a fisherman, not Raybell, who likely found the body. And actually, we hear the fisherman kind of like in the little side, he's talking about like, there was this colored gentleman who caught like a bunch of fish, and I thought it was my turn. And so in the picture, Raybell is an older black man. So yeah, so he's there trying to get some fish too, because apparently the, pla- the place is full of fish. So he didn't find any fish, found a dead girl. Anyway, it's kind of weird, too, though, because he says he heard something and then like, yeah, he's like, I heard a splash. And so I ran over. But like, yeah, as we'll learn later, there's not really the whole the whole scene's weird. And yeah, we can talk about that later because like, yeah, there's a lot of background dialogue going on in this scene that it's like you can ignore it or you can listen to it and be like, whoa, what the hell? So, yeah. yeah, And if you listen to it, you're like, that doesn't make sense, though, because the killer wouldn't have had time to do any of that if you just came over when you heard splashing. But anyway, I don't know. Maybe he heard a different. Well, it depends on which splashing he he heard, too. Right. I guess that's true. Because if he heard a splash, apparently she she got thrown back into into the the water, but then got pulled out again and Mm -hmm. then got put back in, as we'll see with what. So yeah, maybe if maybe that was yeah. the splash he heard was her being thrown back in. So yeah, I guess that's yeah. fair. Or maybe okay. he's just making up a story and he's the killer. We don't know at this point. We don't. So, we don't. He no. could be the killer posing as a friendly fisherman who finds bodies. That's right. So Frank pulls up in his red Jeep Cherokee just as the responders are pulling Tina's body from the water. And they lay her up on a raised gurney. And Peter Watts is there also. And we see that her blouse is kind of bloody. And so Frank kind of lifts the lower edges to reveal her abdomen. And 
deeply carved into her abdomen are the words stop looking it is gross it is deep deep uh-huh. deep those are some deep cuts anyway oh oh man we talk about stuff on this show sometimes and that was like oh that's jarring. yeah they get pretty what's the word gruesome grotesque graphic. on the show they get very yeah, yeah graphic is a good word for it yeah they, they don't pull any punches there yeah i guess the censors at fox are more worried about making sure the x-files doesn't show anything slightly questionable that they're like not paying attention to what yeah, millennium is so. doing or that it's at the i don't know they don't care it's yeah, nine o'clock time know. slot who knows anyway so frank looks at peter and then he looks back at tina and he sees flashes of her attack and then he looks and her face is like you can tell like she like has got like cuts on her face from like where she was hit and maybe like tried to fight or whatever and then he kind of like gently places his hand on the side of her head almost like like you know it's going to be okay kind of thing very very lovingly almost very very sympathetic and then he looks out across the water and then just starts heading towards the shore of the lake he takes off his coat and he throws it to peter and then he just wades into the lake and peter and bletcher (laughs) are just like watching him going like what the hell are you doing anyway he gets about hip deep and then he reaches down and starts feeling around on the bottom with one hand and he brings up a very small hair clip Hmm. oh Tina is played by Deanna Milligan. She played Satin in season two, episode 13, Irresistible. And she'll also be in one more episode of Millennium in season three. Oh, wow. Saying. Yeah, everyone is coming we'll back in season, season one three. and come back in season three. But also, we get another Irresistible tie here. Yeah, that's interesting. That is interesting. be a thing for this episode a little bit. So we got the whole funeral home thing. We got someone who seems kind of creepy. Got people being killed, and then she was the sex worker who was killed. Mm-hmm. Who I had mentioned before, like if she had just dropped her towel and ran instead of just backing up, maybe she would have lived. But that's victim blaming, and I should be ashamed of myself. So also, yeah, you know, I shouldn't be gross and just want to see naked women. But okay. <laughs> I don't like naked women. Sorry. Anyway, so yeah. I don't have a problem with it, but I don't think Fox would have allowed that. So again, <laughs> those censors wouldn't have allowed it. Yeah. <laughs> If it had been an 80s movie, she'd have been naked. We just oh yeah, 100%. Movies. Anyway, so yeah. <laughs> so back at the station, Peter has a blown up image of the hair clip on the screen. They've managed to get two parcels from the same finger and they were able to fuse it into a single print or expediting it through APHIS. Giebel House is like, that was underwater. <laughs> Peter's like, we've lifted prints from bones buried for 50 years. So again, Giebel House doing that like, he's like, how you get prints that was from underwater so again he's being that little like he's being the audience too like oh you can't get prints from that it was underwater and so they're they're kind of lampshading that (laughs) right there his delivery is just like that was underwater (laughs) so it's just funny (laughs) because peter then kind of smiles and is like oh we've listed prints from bones that were buried for 50 years like like just no like it's just funny anyway so aphis is a generic term for automated fingerprint identification services it can't be known in this context if Peter is referring to a national database or a state database or even a local system because they all exist in other countries too. One assumes that's a national database given his FBI and the Millennium Group connections. IAFIS, that is the Integrated Automated Fingerprint Identification System, and it is a computerized system maintained by the FBI since 1999. Nice. It's a National Automated Fingerprint Identification and Criminal History System. 
the Aphis Peter is referring to could have maybe been the predecessor to Iaphis, since this is November 1996. We don't actually know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it was just kind of a generic term. So we don't know exactly what he's referring to. Undoubtedly, probably like the president. Yeah, probably the national. And either way, they're just trying to see if there's any match. There are so many systems. Like there's NCIC and there's like, how many do you guys need? Like, Well, this is something that comes up in true crime all the time, too, is like you have to kind of if you want those systems to work and whether or not we should want them to work is a question of privacy and and just figuring out those lines right like there's a lot of debate on either side but if you really want a streamlined system where you can put someone's fingerprints in and have them pop up you really do need it to not be like state by state and need point system by system you need it to be like one big catalog or it's not going to work out that well yeah and also i mean we would be neglecting our duties to not criticize law enforcement that there is some pushback against things like APHIS and IAFIS mm-hmm. because oh, yeah. even though we are like burned into our brains that fingerprints are like almost like DNA stuff we also know that DNA is not like it is slightly subjective so it it's not like the be-all end-all of things so yeah. no you can have people with really similar fingerprints that may look like a match and they maybe aren't also, like, I don't know. I have really, I'm Italian, so I'm just like made of hair and oil, apparently. But I get, I have to get fingerprinted for my job every like six years. And they have a really hard time fingerprinting me because my fingers just are so oily. Well, like, the fingerprints, them off, Tori. I mean, that would have they, been, they don't show up very well. And it's really hard. So they always have to do it a couple times. The digital ones work better for me. I can't do the paper ones at all. It just smudges too much because my fingers failed are just criminal too, career when you were like, oh, I'm going to sand these all off. And it just yeah, no. Work. So I'm just really hard to fingerprint. So that's true too. Like some people, you might leave a print, but it might smudge. And if you have oily skin, because you're possibly from, Italy, for example, and that's just when you take a shower, is... maybe I don't know. Maybe you should wash more towards. <laughs> I shower <laughs> all the time. It's just my skin produces more of that. It's stuff, all so that it's harder. pizza you're eating all the time. It's the greasy pepperoni <laughs> all over your fingers. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, oh. I do like pizza, so I can't argue with that. But like, yeah. So it's just some people you can leave a fingerprint and it might like smudge a little and then might resemble a different one. So yeah, it's not entirely like a set science or anything. <laughs> Yep, and also I'm just yeah. I guess I missed my criminal career calling because I'm hard to figure out. So to channel a Polly Shore, we know that Tori is greasy. <laughs> yes, I am. yes. I can't help it. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's my genes. It's all genetic. So the phone rings and Bletcher answers. And while he's on the phone, Peter asks Frank what kind of communication the killer is trying to give them. And Frank says he doesn't know, but he does know there's a message on the first body. And Peter's like, well, nothing was found. And Frank says, this carving was too elaborate for a first time. And Peter says that between the stab wounds and the autopsy, if there was a message, it may be gone now. And Frank's like, no, it's there, even if it was an afterthought. So Peter says he'll take a look and he leaves. Hmm. Bletcher, meanwhile, gets off the phone and he says they might have gotten a hit. James Dickerson, he was paroled to the Divestall group home. It's a remand center for paroled convicts. And Frank asked what he was in for. And Bletcher says it was a juvenile case. His records are sealed. Mm-hmm. Then we're at the group home and we see James, formerly Ray and also known as Eric. And he's awakened by Connor, the guy who like runs the house basically and checks him in when he's not there. Yeah. The one who was yelling at him earlier too and grabbed his face yeah. and stuff. Yes. Yeah, same guy. 
And he says James has really done it this time. And then we see that there are police lights flashing outside and there's banging on the door downstairs. So a bunch of cops have now come to the house. And James is like, this is insane. Connor says he doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't want to know because then they'll have him as an accomplice. So he tells James to go and James grabs some clothes and he runs. Downstairs, Bletcher is banging on the door and Connor comes down, but he's like, going kind of slower and he's like trying to buy time fumbling with the keys pretending like he can't figure out how to get the lock open and <laughs> it's it's pretty obvious that he's not trying to open the door mm-hmm. and Bletcher finally tells him to step back and he bursts through the door and he asks where James Dickerson is and Connor says he's up in room three I, I don't want any trouble I'm helpful he's very much like trying to cover his butt so mm-hmm. they run upstairs and other residents are like looking to see what's going on and Bletcher tells them to go back into their rooms and Bletcher and several officers burst into room three but it's empty meanwhile Frank heads to the basement and he gets down there and he sees that there's some fairly large windows that are wide open and Connor comes down behind Frank and says oh yeah those led into the alley and then Bletcher comes downstairs as well and he's like I think he's gone and Frank flips up the window and so like that's probably how he got out so they're like, yeah, James is gone. Yep. And commercial. <laughs> so then we're still at the Dive Stall Romance Center. And Connor brings Bletcher the bed checklist. And Bletcher says that, like, oh, he was here five minutes before we arrived. And Connor is trying to be helpful. And says, like, I don't think James is programming. He has too much anger. And Frank kind of sees through his bullshit and is like, well, what are you doing about that? And Connor says, not much I can do. You ever hear of denial? I don't have a problem. You have a problem. So Frank is like, he just ignores the guy. And he starts looking around the room. And there's a handwritten sign on the room. Because they're like in like what you would consider like the common room sort of. And so Uh there's like little signs around the room like for motivation, that kind of stuff. Although they're all like handwritten like on whiteboards or on just like poster board or something. And this one says, never, never, never. Never stop trying. Never stop feeling. Never stop looking, never stop healing, never stop believing, never stop learning, never stop caring. And Frank focuses on the never stop looking. Mm. Mm-hmm. And Connor's telling Bletcher that, like, I'm not one of these kind of guys to skis out, guys, but so he is one of those kind of guys who will skis out, guys. Mm-hmm. He is one mm-hmm. of those kind of dudes because then we're in James's room. And we see a part of a baseboard is being removed and it reveals like a little hidey hole and inside are some journals and that cigar box that we saw earlier. So inside the cigar box, Frank finds Jeff Court's football pin. And then Bletcher asks Connor how he knew about this space. And Connor's like, oh, well, we had a junkie that we kicked out a while ago. He was using it to hide his fixes. And so I figured maybe James had found out about it. So he's like, I'm just here to help. <laughs> And both Bletcher and Frank are like, hmm. yeah, not buying it, not buying it at all. Yeah. So back at the station, Frank is looking at crime scene photos on a pegboard. Bletcher and Giebelhaus are there. And Bletcher says they have a guy who goes to funerals for fun and then kills people. And then Giebelhaus adds plus carves them up. So he's offering a lot this episode. Yeah. And we see Catherine is also there and she has James's file. And she says he's a classic lost child. Oh, they were so close. So close. Could have called him a lost boy. And she says there's an army of them just like him. 
he was put up for adoption at one and a half, but never placed. He was in and out of foster care reform school. He dealt with abuse and he essentially raised himself. Fletcher's like, well, he didn't do a very good job. And Catherine's like, no shit. Although she doesn't actually say no shit, but she says they never do. No one taught him how to connect with the world. Going to funerals is his attempt at connecting with people. And Frank is looking through papers and envelopes and neither Giebelhouse or Bletcher buying what Catherine's saying. And Bletcher says that he heard once that if a kitten has human contact in the first two weeks, it becomes domesticated. If not, it's feral. Ooh. I don't, I don't think that that's true, but anyway. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe, I don't know. Frank's is like definitely half feral for sure. And he was a little, yeah, but I don't know. Both my guys were rescued pretty much as I don't even know. Like Locke was born at the Humane Society, so he always had human contact. And yeah. Billy, I'm not so sure about, but I'm pretty sure his it was another like his mom was rescued before he was born or shortly after. So yeah. We're guessing someone dumped Frank's because he was a black cat and people don't like black cats because they're stupid. I know and black so, cats are amazing. Yeah. Because like he was found like on an island near the airport. So yeah poor baby yeah so anyway Catherine goes over to frank and she's like tough room which by the way i kind of love that Catherine. she's not really profiling so much as just like extrapolating from the facts and what she knows about cases like this but it is kind of funny to see her doing basically the same sort of thing that frank does so just saying he hands her the stack of envelopes and asks what she makes of them and they're all returned to sender She flips through them and they're all addressed to the same person. So she opens his file and looks up the name, Peggy DeChant. That's his biological mother. She contacted victim's assistance three years ago. So then at night, Connor arrives at a junkyard, which is called Scorpion Salvage. And there's guard dogs snarling and barking at the gate. And he dumps a bunch of hot dogs over the fence and then climbs over as the dogs eat. So then he runs across the yard and he climbs up this stack of wrecked cars. And on the very top car, James is inside and he's brought James food. And at first, James doesn't want to eat. But then Connor's like, come on, come on, man. Come on, come on. And it finally gets him to eat. And then he continues with the come on and they're eating. He's like, oh, who takes care of you? Who's your friend? And then they are sitting in the car eating like burgers and fries and stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, Connor is very, man, I'm not sure. So, well, I am sure he's a creep boy. Anyway, Mm -hmm. so yeah, yeah. So Frank is in the squad room on the phone and he thanks the person that he's talking to and hangs up. And then Bletcher comes in and he says, Ah, just like old times, everybody else is gone, but you're still here working. And Frank says, I just got off the phone with one of the families in James's journal. He's got the little notebooks that are James's journal. And he says that their son died about a year ago and James stayed with them for a week in their home. Bletcher's like, I'm surprised they're still alive. <laughs> and Frank says that they described him as a very kind and loving young man who actually helped them get through a very difficult time. And Bletcher's like, hmm, I wonder what pushed him over the edge. And then Frank is like, I'm not sure he was pushed. And then Peter comes in and says, Frank was right. He did find something in the first victim. So they get up and they go into the room that Peter was in. And he's in this room with like blue light and everything. And he's like, the skin was so distressed that I decided to check the clothing. And they're looking at some images, but we don't really see anything. It's just looking like a bunch of cloth or something. And Frank is like, what is it? And Peter says, pollen. And Frank is like, 
cow, Lily. Peter kind of smiles. And then he says there was a message. He lifted the image electrostatically. And he shows him some more photos. And Bletcher is like, I, I can't see anything. And Peter says that's because the image was too faint. So he tried a 50-minute exposure. And he shows them some more photos. And we can see the word stop looking like kind of like on the cloth, right? Yeah. And the lettering is very similar to the carving that was on Tina's abdomen. (laughs) Yeah. Bletcher is like, I don't want to like want to be a spoil sport or anything, but like (laughs) we've already got this. Like we've already got stop looking. How is this helping us at all? And Peter's like, well, I, I mean, I guess you're right. But then Frank holds the photos because they're almost like polaroids almost and the way he's holding it like he's kind of blocking off the bottom word and then he's kind of focusing on the s in the stop so they all head into the squad room and he grabs one of james's journal and in it a pen is stuck in the like the binding you know to keep it there and the pen has the same style of s on it the pen is from scorpion salvage (gasps) we didn't mention this the first time but scorpion is spelled with a k and the S's are like lightning bolts because heavy metal man. So mm-hmm. yeah, very, very metal band lettering. So yeah. At the junkyard, the dogs are going nuts. Uh-huh. James wakes up in his little wreck car hiding place and he sees cop lights at the gate. So he's like, oh shit, I gotta get out of here. So we see a caretaker or a guard or someone who like obviously is in control of the place at some point. They've got a key and they're unlocking the gates. And also the dogs are going nuts. And you're like, dude, if you open the gates, these dogs are going to attack the cops or the cops are going to shoot the dogs because cops do that, which sucks. But apparently the guy is there and able to calm the dogs enough, even though they keep barking. Because when he gets the gate open, the cops go in and they don't get attacked by dogs. And then for some reason, James apparently thought that running towards the gate was a good escape plan. Because then he's like, because oh, he sees all the cops coming in, so he decides to go the other way. So I don't know what he was thinking. But anyway. I thought he went to the back, and they were coming through that gate, too. But that doesn't make a lot of sense, because why would there be a back gate? So I don't know. Yeah, and like and like Bletcher is in, in both shots. So Right, so I guess he did yeah. go towards the front. But he saw from the car where they were coming in. So, yeah, I don't know why he went yeah, there. So Maybe what he, he was, was turned thinking. around. Yeah, Maybe, so yeah, then he starts know. heading the other direction. But now the junkyard dogs are on his trail. They're, like, working for the man now. The dogs are chasing him down. And they corner him, and the dogs fuck him up. They like they attack do. him, and they're like dragging him around, and they're oh like, "Oh my gosh, him. no!" Yeah, they really do. at him. Them dogs are messing him up, and so Bletcher's there. Thankfully, Bletcher shoots his gun in the air, and that magically makes the dog stop and run away. So no dogs had to be shot in real life. They probably just start opening fire on the dogs and kill the dogs. But anyway. Mm-hmm. He calls for an ambulance and then Frank approaches and James is just laying there and he's like, oh, oh, he's all bloody and shit. And so he got <laughs> messed up by the dogs. Yeah, oh my God, he really did. Yeah. Yeah. And that's commercial. So. Yeah. So Catherine arrives at the home of Peggy DeChant and she's with the deputy and she knocks, but the door just opens. Like when she knocks on it, it just like flies open. So she's yeah, like, people lock your goddamn door. I Jesus. know. Oh my gosh. Especially so with she, the way she reacts in the scene about like how she's got to protect her family and her child and stuff like that. Like, you, but you leave your door unlocked and not even like closed all the unlocked way. Unlocked and not latched. So someone touches yeah. it and it's just like the wind is going to blow that open. Anyway. She's like, hello, is anyone home? And it takes a minute. And finally, the chant comes downstairs and she apologizes. And then she realizes who they are and why they're there. And she's not very happy about it. Mm -hmm. So she's like, you told me I'd never hear from him again. 
And Catherine's like, well, we know he sent you letters. And she's like, letters? Three years ago, he walked right up the driveway, a complete stranger. He hugged her and said he wanted to come home. She's still afraid. And Catherine tells her that he's in custody. And she's like, good, you can keep him. And Catherine's like, well, he's been asking for you. He's your son. And she's like, he's not my son. He's something that happened when I was a strung out teenager. You said you'd find him a good home and you never did. So now you can deal with him. And Catherine's like, well, we are, but two people are dead. And she's like, did he do that? And Catherine's like, we need your help. So this woman clearly wants nothing to do with this kid and is not happy that people are trying to pull her into having something to do with the kid. Yeah. I'm kind of wondering how he tracked down his birth mother, because if that's the case, those records are probably sealed, especially if she was a teenager. So I don't know. He must have gotten through those somehow. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, who knows? But yeah, I mean, I can I don't I go back and forth on this because like she gave him up for adoption. OK, right. And then so like I get it. But at the same time, like she should be allowed to not have to. Right. I mean, like, it's like it's a, it's like a choice. It's it's weird. It's it's rough because like, yeah, like you want to reconnect with your family and like some people maybe don't, they don't want you to. And so it's weird. I, I keep going back and forth on her. I mean, the way she reacts a lot is very harsh. Uh-huh. And we'll see some more of it later. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, she's right. Like she sh- doesn't have to deal with any of this. And she and she honestly, the things they're asking, we'll see later, the things they're asking her to do. She has no ability to do those. Right. She's not been around him. So like it's kind of unfair. Yeah, it's hard. She's also very harsh. Yeah. And I've never been in either situation. I'm not adopted. I've never given a kid up for adoption. So I don't I know those are really complex situations. And I'm sure that it's different for everybody. She is not written to be someone that is very sympathetic, but at the same time, I get that it's unfair to come to her and ask her to like help with this person that she really doesn't know like it's not her fault that the kid was bounced around the foster system it's not her fault that you know if she doesn't have a connection to it and like some people might at that point go oh man I really want to help like when this kid shows up in her driveway might be happy to see him and clearly that was not the case with her and she didn't want him in her life and I guess that's her that's her prerogative right like yeah and I mean it's kind of it's almost like the opposite of like found family it's like okay yeah she has a blood connection to this guy but at the same time, he is like an adult man, basically, that uh-huh. she has no idea about anything with his life. And yet multiple people are expecting her to just like, well, we have blood, so come on in. Like, yeah, it's, it's true. Yeah, it's, it's true. Very, it's a lot to yeah. ask of her. So either way, like I'm on, I see both sides of it. I get why it's a big pain point for him, but also like, yeah, it is a lot to ask of someone who clearly had already severed ties and didn't want to be involved. And it's yeah. made it very clear multiple times that she does not want any yeah. involvement. So. I think what makes it a little more unsim- aside from some of her behavior is that obviously like whatever was going on when he was born, she was in like a bad state, right? She says a strung out teenagers. Like, was she on drugs? What was going on? Right. We don't know, but obviously her life is going really well now. And so it's like, she's in a place of privilege now. Yeah. And, un- and unwilling to help someone who is not. So there's that aspect to it. It's very, yeah. like said, you get super conflicted feelings about what's going mm-hmm. on in the situation. Anyway. Yeah, it's definitely a complex situation for a TV show to like kind of, they can't really address it all really, you know? Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> no. Anyway, 
So we are back at the Seattle Public Safety Building and it is 4.33 p.m. And Bletcher and Giebelhaus are interrogating James Dickerson. And Frank is watching through the one-way glass in the other room. And James is talking about how like he went to go get a coat or something. And then he came and he found Tina and like how he wanted to come forward. But you know, and they, so they're going back and forth. So there's a conversation happening behind the glass because we're in the room with Frank and Peter comes up alongside Frank and Frank tells him that James says he didn't do it. And Peter is like, well, he might actually believe that. And then he tells Frank to call him if he figures out what stop looking means because he has a 630 flight. So he's heading out. Frank is like really silent and then Peter asks him if he's okay with everything like he could stay and Frank's like no not necessary and then Peter's like well, is he capable and Frank says yes and then he asks if he has the profile Frank's kind of quiet and he nods and he's like yes and then he tells Peter to have a safe flight and he thanks him for coming and they shake hands and you know Peter's like well thank you you know and then he leaves and then we cut back into the interrogation room because, again, we've had like a little background conversation. We've been hearing snippets of the whole time. And Bletcher's like, so when you left to get this so-called coat, you were aware that she knew you had not met her dead boyfriend, right? She knew that you were lying already. And he's like, yeah, I, I guess, yeah. And so he's like, so she didn't leave you much choice, did she? And James is like, I didn't kill anybody, I swear. Giebelhaus is like, yeah, well, James, Ray, Travis, Eric, you're kind of a professional liar, aren't you? Pathological prevarication. That's what they call it. And then back on the other side of the glass, we see Frank just like leaves. And in the hall, he's walking down the hall and then he kind of turns. You're like almost like that feeling like, you know, there's someone, you know, someone's behind you and then you can't see them kind of thing. And so he turns and Connor is there and he's like, can I help you? And Connor is like, well, I just, I came to get James. And Frank is like, well, you might as well go home. And Connor's like, well, I lost my trustee privileges. So, you know, so he doesn't have a job anymore. So You're probably not at home either. He's probably live. living there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and then he's like, can I see James? And Frank is like, family only. And Connor's like, yeah, well, fat chance on that. And then Catherine arrives with Peggy to chant. And he introduces her to Frank. And then Frank thanks her for coming. And the three of them head to the interrogation room. Connor just stares after them. Mm -hmm. so, mm. so as they enter the room, James is like, I knew you'd come. And he gets up and just gives Peggy to chant a big old hug. Uh -huh. And he's like, you can tell them that I never killed anybody. And he's just hugging her and hugging her. And Connor is watching through the window in the door, and then he leaves. And inside the room, James is still hugging his mother and asking her to tell them how he didn't do anything. And she finally is just like, oh, just get off. And she like pushes him away. And she's like, I can't do this. I don't even know him. And so she like leaves. And Catherine's calling after her. And then she just stops and tells Catherine, like, no, you people raised him. He's all yours. And then she turns and leaves. So this is the part where like it's unfair for them to like how. How could she give any testimony about him? Like, she doesn't know anything about him. Right. So. And I think that they're bringing her there in hopes that it will get him to talk and probably admit what happened or whatever. But yeah, I mean, she obviously can't vouch for his innocence. She doesn't know. So she can't really help him from that perspective. And again, she doesn't want to be part of his life. Like, yeah, it sucks. But like, she's made that clear yeah. several years also ago. 
in an interrogation room with someone you think is a murderer, you're going to let them just get up and go right to someone and hug them? Like, why is he not even chained to the table? Like, <laughs> Well, and like he hugs her and it's so awkward because like, it's not even like, oh, you came. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's you came, mommy. And like hugs her. And it's like, dude, yeah, and just like engulfs dude, you her. You do like, not have a like, relationship with this woman. I know she's your biological yeah. mother. But you guys do not have a relationship. And it goes at all. on for a long time, and yeah. no one is like everyone's just like, like yeah, it's very yeah. strange. So, yeah, and so she leaves, and then inside the room, James just breaks down, and he's like, "You want a confession?" And he sits down, and he's like, "I did it. I killed them, and I do it again." And so Gibblehouse is like, "Okay, you did it," and. Like, you know, there weren't like more. Like, we need, you can't just say you did it. We need, you know, like in a way, like we're not just gonna take it because you said you did it. Like, we need right. some sort of other, yeah. And so Bletcher's <laughs> like, what does stop looking mean? And James just like, stop looking. You found me. And Frank doesn't stop looking at James at all. No, he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> So then Frank and Catherine are driving home in a torrential downpour and Catherine laments, how could anyone abandon a child? But millions of people do it. Millions. God, it's scary. And they stop at a red light and Frank watches the mother and child cross the street. And Catherine continues saying they have home after home filled with kids like James. They know they'll turn violent. How does she tell the survivors that no one saw it coming? And Frank just says, a thousand points of darkness. And Catherine says, people full of holes, like James, living off the fantasy that his mother will somehow make everything better. Frank says it doesn't make sense. James never gave up. He never stopped looking. And Catherine says it was a fantasy. And Frank has flashes of Tina being attacked and then of Peggy DeChant bruised and beaten. And then of the words carved into Tina's abdomen. And he realizes it wasn't a message from James. It was a message to James to stop looking. And Catherine asked for family. And Frank realizes it was Connor. He wanted James all to himself. Also that scene when Frank's flashes start, that scared the shit out of me. Oh yeah. Like the, just the the abrupt cut. Cause like the abrupt Uh cut is like to Tina being like, Oh, being attacked or thing. Like it was just so like, you weren't expecting it to happen. Like you kind of knew he was something was going to happen. He's like looking through the windshield, the red light, kind of think something's going to happen. But man, that cut just like, it just, that was a total like jump scare. I was like, Whoa. So yeah. (laughs) And it's super easy to miss the image of Peggy to chant bruised and beating because i actually missed it several times and only knew it was there because i was looking at a transcript and i was like i don't see it. and i had to go through it frame by frame and it's super short it's super easy oh, to wow miss. so yeah i mean i don't know if you saw it but i didn't the first i time. didn't know i just saw the yeah. um i would almost say it's not because that would be way that would be too fast even for me to have freeze framed it stop but it's almost like it's one frame so it's crazy it's like really in there there's a lot of freeze frame in this episode because his flashes are super crazy in this episode. There's a lot of stuff going on in them that you can easily miss stuff. So, yeah. 
So then we see Peggy DeChant and she's getting home and she takes off her coat and she finds a note from her husband, Fred, that he'll be back by 9 p.m. So then we cut and we see someone running a bath and they're lighting some candles. So it's almost like sexy time baths, candles and stuff. It's all dark in there. And then we see her in the bathroom and she's naked and she's getting ready to get in her bathtub. And then she hears a noise and she's like, Fred, is that you? So she wraps a towel around herself. We can't just have naked ladies walking around on TV. And she goes into the hallway. It's like, Fred, is that you, Fred? And she tries to flip on a light, but like fritzes out. And then she steps on something that sounds like broken glass. And she cries out and her foot's bloody. And I kind of wonder if it fritzed out because they had smashed the light. And that's why it fritzed out and the glass is from the bowl, but I'm not actually Yeah, I think so. I think that's what happened is they had smashed the light. She turned it on and went... And then, you know, she stepped on the broken glass, which, ouch. Yeah, and so she looks, and her foot is bloody, and then she looks back up, and she sees someone reflected in the mirror, and she screams. And then we cut, and we see the bathtub is overflowing. Mm-hmm. And we see Frank, and he finds the side door of the chant home broken and ajar. And so he enters. The house is totally dark and totally quiet, except for you can hear the sound of the overflowing bathtub so like uh-huh. water's still running it's overflowing so he goes upstairs he enters the bedroom and the bathroom is like you know in the bedroom and so the bathroom door is slightly ajar so he looks inside and Peggy the chant is lying on the floor like against the wall near the toilet and she's all bloody and she's kind of convulsing maybe a little bit we're not sure if she's like sobbing or convulsing or both probably and they're like bloody footprints on the floor and there's blood smears on the wall and there's a knife on the toilet seat and frank bends down to check her and we can see that she kind of has some letters carved into her abdomen she's kind of like covering herself with parts of the towel but you Mm -hmm. can't see like her belly and like there's some stuff cut into it already Mm -hmm. and she kind of like opens her eyes and the minute she does connor wraps his belt around frank's throat and starts strangling him no so they're like struggling. They're getting up, and Frank Frank actually tries to just like run up the wall, move at one point. He's like, oh, woo, like knocks one of the candles off. But then they crash through the shower door, and he gets his head slammed against the tile wall. And then they continue struggling, and he manages to kick against the door, and it pushes them both back, and they fall into the tub backwards. So Connor is under Frank, and so he's underwater. And eventually, he's like starting to drown, and so he loosens his grip on the belt as he's struggling for air and Frank is able to get free and he gets up and he grabs Connor and he pulls him out of the bathtub and he throws him on the floor and Connor's all he's like all like swallowed water and stuff so Mm -hmm. that was a crazy scene yeah very very well done too I have to say so also that bathroom is the size of my bedroom if not bigger by the way there are so many bathrooms that are just like the size of my apartment I'm like how how is that even possible like if you watch like all like the John Hughes movies and stuff, this show is kind of the same. Like people have gigantic houses. Like, oh my God, they're gigantic. Like I know people have houses. I my brother-in-law has what is probably close to a million dollar house now in Portland because you could almost have like a shack and it be a million dollar house. His yeah, house is not true. a shack. His house is really true. nice. He got lucky and bought it from the people who he used to house it for them and then they moved and so they offered him a deal and he was able to get it at a really good value and of course in the market you know blew up and so it's a it's a very nice house but it is nowhere near as big as all these houses we are seeing in millennium so it's like 
yeah yeah well and part of that is like yes there are massive bathrooms out there but part of it's also just like set design and you need enough room for them to yeah, do this, this i mean because honestly so like logistically Mulder and scully live in apartments and their apartments are almost houses technically like from the yeah interior. they have very large so, apartments yes. yeah and very nice like wood floors and although and Mulder's apartment's not super big at least not in the first few seasons like but it's nice. Yeah, it's it's pretty, not it's small. Pretty good size. His kitchen. Yeah, I mean, his nice. living room. His, his, nice. his living room is a big, giant rectangle that is like the size of my kitchen and living yeah. room together. Yeah, and he has a very so. nice like workspace. And yeah, he's yeah mm-hmm. he's got some good good. He's got yeah. a good. Apartment. Although huge gap under the front door. Like oh my god. Yeah, like, that's not that. good. Man, just insulation wise, like for heating, just like cover that shit up. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, enough of that. So Peggy DeChant is played by Linda Boyd. She mm-hmm. was in. Season one, episode 12, Fire, and also in season two, episode 22, F Emasculata. Yeah, she was the one who was sitting in the hospital box, probably dying mm-hmm. of the virus. Yeah, but... yeah I was going to say she doesn't fare well in X Files land because in Fire, she gets burned up and ends up in the hospital. And then in F Emasculata, she ends up in like the supervillain quarantine room. And then in this one, she gets cut up and is going to have to go to the hospital. So, yeah. <laughs> I guess at least she's not dying, although probably in F Masculata, she probably did. But I don't know. Maybe she didn't have it. We never find out if she had it or not. So maybe Yeah, we don't. Just, I mean, and if she didn't have it, honestly, she's probably going to end up in some government lab for them trying to figure out how she, like, managed to, like, have an immunity to it. And they're going to be using her as a guinea pig. So Yeah, she'll be in the cell next to the guy from Softlight. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what happened to her kid. Like, what did oh, they do good with her question. kid? Social services. He's going to become just like this guy, James. Oh, cool. <laughs> unless, unless he also like gets the disease and dies. So yeah, yeah. Mm, that's really but, yeah, dark. But, that got bleak real quick. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it is millennium. So this is her last appearance in X Files land, though. So we're not okay. going to see her again. So yeah. So Bletcher throws Connor into a squad car, and Connor spits at the closed window. And he tells Frank, two-week window, feral or tame. And he tells the driver to take him away. And then he turns and tells Frank he should have waited for them before going in. And Frank's like, well, she'd be dead now if I had. And we see EMTs are putting Peggy to chant into an ambulance and Catherine is watching. Fletcher tells Catherine that Frank should have waited and she should tell him. He'll listen to her. And she walks over to Frank, who's bandaging his hand. And she tells Frank she knows he had to go in there because of who he is, because he had no choice. But she tells him she can't lose him. And he says he's not going anywhere. She makes him promise. And he nods. She says she doesn't want to ask herself if she's strong enough to be alone. And Frank tells her it's okay. Nobody is. Mm. And then we see James and he's back at the group home and he's in his room lying on his bed and he's still all messed up from the dog attack. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they really did get him. But he opens the newspaper and he starts looking through obituaries. And he circles one for a young man who tragically passed away at the age of 23. And the memorial service will be on November 22nd, 1996. And then it's the end. Yep. Yeah. So James Dickerson is played by Sean Six. He is best known for playing Buck Francisco in the TV movie Alien Nation, 22 episodes of the series Alien Nation, and the five follow-up TV movies of Alien Nation. So aside from one other credit in 1989, that's actually his like 
career, according to IMDb. Apparently, he started acting like at age eight, but it was all like theater stuff. Okay. So, he also apparently attended Portland State University. Oh, cool. So yeah. local. I know. According to IMDb, he was born in New York. He went to high school in Marin County. And then he also attended Portland State. So, huh. yeah. But yeah, he played uh, Buck Francisco. He did look super familiar to me. And I know I did watch that series, Alien Nation. And he does have a pretty prominent role. So that might be where. Because he's, yeah. the, he's the son of the alien cop. And he's also kind of got that thing where like he's, you know, he's a teenage son. And so he's trying to like adopt earth culture. And so there's pushback against the family and all that kind of stuff. Also, it's kind of funny because like all the aliens have like crazy ass names because they're basically doing that kind of thing of like, like, oh, earth culture. So like, you know, the father is like George Francisco because like George Washington in San Francisco and the son is like Buck Francisco. And they all have like those kind of weird names of like just randomly putting stuff together for names. It's kind of funny. But yeah, it was not, it wasn't a bad series. I mean, it's based on it's weird because there was a TV movie. The TV movie is based on the actual movie movie. And then there was a TV series. And then when the series ended, they did five TV movies. And actually, the last time he plays Buck Francisco is actually the same year as this episode. But after it, apparently, it is listed as 1990. Well, actually, no, it's 1997. I apologize. So it's actually the year after this. So, huh. But that is his last credit on IMDb. So it's this and then the final Alien Nation movie. So because uh, cool. Mandy Patankin was played the father in the movie movie. And then I believe James Caan played the cop. OK. So, and then they did a TV movie that I guess was like the pilot. And then they had the TV series. And then I didn't know they had TV movies afterwards. I watched the TV series. So because it's kind of it's basically like Lethal Weapon where one of them is an alien. And one of them is um, Riggs. Okay, gotcha. I've never yeah. seen it, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like the rough and tumble earth cop who like doesn't always play by the book. And then the like button down alien cop who is basically like more white than white people. So kind of thing. So yeah. <laughs> okay. Interesting. I mean, fine. Yeah. So this is kind of the first time Millennium has really obscured the killer. I mean, sort of. I mean, it's not the first time they've obscured the killer, but this is the first well, time they've kind of like, done more of a twist on it, before right? Before like, we actually see Connor in the episode, like I said, if you freeze frame that scene, right? But most people aren't freeze framing him. that. Yeah. So, so most people <laughs> aren't doing. But that. it does clearly show him. So if you did, right. you would see you 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 would see him and be like, "Who the hell is that?" Right. And then when he shows up, was, you'd be like, yeah. "Oh, it's him." Yeah, you maybe not would do that voice, but, but I just mean that yeah. normally Millennium shows us the killer and we know who it is usually so far. Obviously, we're not very far into the series, so who knows if that will hold. But this is kind of the first time where they like showed us somebody and then it really wasn't that person. So I was just going to ask you when you knew James wasn't the killer and possibly it's when you freeze framed on the grave. Well, I mean, it probably <laughs> was that, but also I had been reading a little bit before I watched it, and so I kind uh, okay. of knew what was going okay. on. So I knew, I knew that that guy, I, like, I did, I, I was skimming, and so I didn't get all the context of like who was who and what was what. Right. But I knew the person that they were going to take into custody was not the killer. Gotcha. And so, okay. Yeah. So I kind of had, and then obviously the freeze frame thing. So, yeah. Because I do, I have gotten to where I just, I automatically like freeze frame. Frank's oh, I, I never, I never because there's do that, so, so much going on in them that. But there is this a is lot. actually this is actually the first one where I think we have like some maybe possibly like 
hidden info that you might not see in a regular viewing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, because we do get again, we get when Peter is standing over the grave, then he is basically in the same spot as the killer and then the killer throws in the lily and then we see who the killer is. And then mm-hmm. there's also that little like almost subliminal scene of Peggy to chant all like laying mm-hmm. there against the bathroom wall, bloody and beat up. So, yeah. Yeah, so I can't I can't really say when I knew. Okay. Unfortunately. Well, for yeah. me, it was when he brought him the burgers in the junkyard. Mm. As soon as he brought him food and knew where he was hiding, I because you kind of get the feeling that he wants to be a parental figure, like a little bit. Like he's like, I take care of you. I check you, and you're not here, like a big brother type thing. But then, like once he brings him food, I'm like, oh, he's like trying to be his dad kind of and so that's he's the killer yeah and- i wasn't sure i i mean obviously i am just like that i automatically went into creepoid mode and was thinking like maybe he wanted like a sexual relationship with him at some point too or some see i didn't get that i very much got but, that he wants to be yeah. like well i mean you don't get that from the vibe like, my head on it. like maybe that was like what the intent was to slow like this little grooming thing maybe i mean yeah thing. So you never know. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, you don't. But Hard that wasn't say. the impression I got. Yeah. I just we don't know why Connor is in the group home, like what he did. We so. don't know, and we know that he was kind of like, yeah, we don't know what he did, and we don't know what he exactly. But I definitely got the vibe that like he wanted to kind of be the big brother, the person that James was like kind of relying on, and like, yeah. And so then he started killing because like, yeah, that he's got a weird. I'm not I'm not sure if that's the writing or if that would be true to character because I don't have a lot of experience with those kind of people. At least I don't think I do. Because he's like willing to give maybe it's because he's willing to give up information he knows won't be that bad, but it seems like he's like he would be like the stool pigeon dude. Like he would totally rat you out oh, if yeah. he thought it would save his ass. And yet then he is also like so I'm not sure what's going on. It's yeah. like a weird yeah. It's very much I'm going to cover my ass first, but he clearly does want to help him. I'm not saying that he wouldn't throw him under the bus to save his own ass. Like he completely probably did because he would have, if he really cared, he would have confessed, right? He would have said, no, I killed those people. Take me, leave James alone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, clearly that's more important. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's when I knew I was like, oh, he's the killer. He's killing because he's trying to help James or keep James from making these connections or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Again, and we mentioned it throughout the episode, a lot of connections with irresistible in this one, mm-hmm. with the funeral home, the kind of creepiness, the killing. And then also we mentioned the fact that Chip Johannesson is going to co-write mm-hmm. the return of Donnie Faster in yeah. season seven with Chris Carter. So, cause Chris Carter wrote irresistible. So there's more of that connection too. I have read that's that's why he co-wrote it because of this episode. I don't know if that's true, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely yeah. like James is obviously not a murderer, but he's still a little creepy, and he is kind of Evan Hansoning his way into these people's lives and being like, "Oh no, I knew, I knew your son," and like. He lives with that family for a week, which it, clearly it helped them. So I guess there's an argument to be made like about what he's doing. But like, if you had done that to me, I would have been like, and I found out I would be super skeeved out and, you know, really grossed out and not happy about it. So I guess it just depends. Like if, I guess if they never find out and they just think he's a well-meaning friend and he's just 
telling them, oh, he loved you guys so much and giving the mom a super long, awkward hug and walking away. It's probably not doing that much damage, but it's that's the thing. It's those hugs are like if he was just trying to make like like found family, right? Like I don't have a family. My family, you know, my mother doesn't Mm -hmm. want anything to do with me kind of thing. Like so he's trying to find that connection. And he's like, you know, like the I mean, those there's truth to them, but they've kind of been debunked as well. Like, you know, like the wire monkey mom kind of. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Experience they did. Like, there is some of that going on. Like, he has no frame of reference for how to make human connections with people, right? And so, like, there's that, and he's trying to figure that out. And so, like, that would be I'm not fine because you're doing it from a fraudulent perspective, right? right. Like, you're starting it with a lie. But at the same time, like, if he's not doing any harm, that is fine. I mean, he is stealing. But then also, there's just that, like, if he hadn't had the creepy hugs, I think that would have been a difference, right? It would have made a little difference in maybe how you would feel about it. Because you do feel sympathy for the guy. I mean, you oh, can't. Oh, for sure. Not, yeah, absolutely. Think, right? But at the same time, you're like, but what you're doing is wrong, dude. Uh-huh. Like, it's almost like if you subtracted the creepiness from it. Because it does seem like, like, like he's collecting things. Well, it, like, is there a point where he might actually escalate at some point to do more and more stuff? We don't know. Yeah, right? like and you he's never got know. Some behaviors that start out mm-hmm. small, you know, like they were thinking just from like the mo of the murders. Like he started doing this, and it seemed like that would be a natural progression. So, like, are we eventually gonna see that with him? We don't know. Yeah, so. I wouldn't be surprised if like, I mean, obviously this is not a real person, but if they were to go check in on him in like four years, I would five say, years, like if we had a season seven of Millennium, would someone be co-writing an episode with this guy where he back comes back? And maybe and, he is yeah. the killer now. Yeah, I mean, so not and there are other ways. Stuff. Like I no. get that this is his way of trying to have human connection, but like join meetup, join a book club, like find... of some kind well he also unfortunately (laughs) has the whole he's been incarcerated yes going on that is true that does aside on top of and then also too we don't know like you know she mentions it like abuse like what kind of abuse right we don't know any of that and that and that may lead into me thinking why connor is a creepoid because like unfortunately people who have been abused Again, this is like, you don't want to get into victim blaming, but people can pick up on people who have been abused. Like abusers can sense that in other people kind of thing. Like you can, they almost like they can, they can pick you out. And so people who are abused often are abused serially by different individuals because abusers are able to sense that in an individual. Or because you just, people have patterns, you know, and you, you learn if you're the victim of abuse, you learn bad patterns of behavior because of the abuse you learn you you normalize things that to other people are going to be like hell no get away from me that you can't do that whereas if that has become normalized to you through abuse you're going to be less and it's not victim blaming i'm just saying that you might be less likely to immediately recognize that that's not normal and that's not a, a right. good way for someone or to treat if you you're, or if something you're around like people who aren't going to use every opportunity to find control over you they might see your behavior and be like well that's because like that's just how you're coping with something or whatever and and realize it and then maybe try and help you work for it whereas someone who is willing to abuse you is going to see that same behavior and realize that's an in 
right? Yes, exactly. They're going to exploit. It's not that yes. you did anything wrong as the victim. It's just that you can be no an abuser a, might exploit the complete those other things. side. Yeah, yeah. Someone, someone will see your behavior those things in you and realize and, that you need help, and someone else will see your behavior and realize that's something they can exploit. And so, right. Yes. So yeah. yeah, but either way, like he clearly doesn't have a great story, and what he's doing is not a good way to cope with it, and it's not going to help him because you're not gonna no have any long-lasting meaningful connections because eventually you're going to get started with a liar liar, right yeah i mean that's the entire look dear evan hansen is a highly problematic musical the music slaps i'm not gonna say it doesn't but that is the the conceit of the musical right it's this kid who gets into this lie about knowing connor who is now dead who died by suicide and claims to be a friend to the family who now believes that evan was like connor's dearest bestest friend and so like all the the entire and that lie spirals out of control and that's what the musical is about is about how that kind of thing you eventually if you spend i am glad that you answered the question that i was going to ask and then got distracted and forgot to ask so thank you yeah that's what dear evan hansen is about it's about a high school kid who he writes himself these notes that are like dear it's like a therapy project so he has to write notes that are like dear evan hansen today blah 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 and he's writing himself letters and connor is this kid who's also having mental health struggles takes the note and then he dies by suicide later with the note in his pocket so his family you know is given the notes as this was on connor when he died and the family thinks that it was a letter that he was writing to Evan Hansen. And they think it was a suicide note because he's talking about how he's struggling and, you know, having problems. Mm. And so they think that he knew Connor and was his really good confidant. And so Evan, instead of saying, oh, no, actually, I didn't really know him that well. He just kind of goes with it because he doesn't have a father figure. His mom's a single mom who's working all the time. And they have like this family and they have like a really nice house. And he has a crush on the daughter, which is very creepy, actually, just because he like gets to know her. But like, I was your dead brother's friend. And at the end of the musical, his lie is exposed and everyone, you know, the family basically doesn't want anything to do with him after that, which fair. But like, that's the entire plot. That's interesting, though, because... <laughs> the the initiation the initiation point for that is not through him no he doesn't do it on purpose family puts that on him they just does and he goes with it deny it and he has social anxiety and so like there are reasons why he maybe isn't great at saying oh no no that's not true and he does think well maybe it'll help them to think that he had a friend and then you know i get to hang out with this great family and feel like i'm part of it and so like you know win-win but <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's the same. It's a very similar thing. Only uh, the thing with James is like, it's never going to work because yes, he stayed with that family for a week, but how long can you be a part of that before the lie comes out or before, you know, if you have emotions at all, the guilt starts eating at you or whatever. Like, yeah, it's just well, not, it almost seems gonna... like too, like after that week that he was done with it, right? He wasn't maybe, or we, or we don't know the whole story because we also yeah. see that when, when he's with Tina in that, in that room, he realizes that like he's not gonna be able to keep this up for long and that's mm-hmm. why he's like you know oh just being here is really messing me up i gotta go and right he's, just, he's trying to get away from the situation because he realized if he has to keep going he is going to slip up yes and so he needs to get out of the situation and then she's like mm, st-. again 
I mean, like she did have good instincts, but at the same time, she didn't listen to those instincts. And so <laughs> listen to yeah. your instincts. And she even has yeah. them again at the lake because like he starts hugging her for a really long time and she starts to get kind of like, mm, yeah, okay, this at is that weird. point it's too so, late, though. That it point is, is too yeah. late. But yeah, it's just not a good system. So yeah, dude, find a better system to connect with people. I know it sucks. It's hard. I'm an adult. I don't know how to make friends as an adult anymore. <laughs> like, what do you do? Where do you go to find? Can, again, I joined book clubs and stuff. I mean, what do you do? You, it's really hard. It's it's a struggle. So yeah, I also found the scenes with Mister Court and Greer very good. Like the the uh-huh. guy, he did a really good job of being like I'm angry, and then like he's able to soften, and then can go back like he's able to play like that was there was some really good like emotional range in there that i thought was really well done and then of course we got to see like her actually act which was nice so Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, i thought that was nice too i really liked the whole like the system treats these victims as evidence but we have to understand that to the family like yes they want the killer caught but they also need to be part of that process like we can't just shut them out and yeah because one of the things he says we don't have it in the summary is that like my wife's body doesn't belong to the government or the state or whatever and she's like you're right but unfortunately like in cases like this they do think of it as evidence and so like and that's where they start to soften and have their discussion stuff Mm -hmm. this actually came up in the last episode too which i forgot to discuss i missed i dropped the ball a lot last episode (laughs) but it comes up in this one too like last episode we talked about how like harden's wife just like is like oh la 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 la, i'm going to the dry cleaner and then it's like imagine when she came home Oh, yeah, I thought about that. We didn't talk about that at all. But And then the yeah. same thing here, like when Fred comes home, like, oh, honey, I'll be home by nine o'clock. And then he shows up and like his house is probably like swarmed by cops. And like, I don't know if he's already there or not. Or like, and then his wife is gone because she got attacked and your bathroom's covered in blood. Like, holy shit. I know. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's some heavy guilt going on with that. Um, probably more so with Mrs. Um... Yeah. I would think. I would think. Just come in. My husband's in his boxers. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, Greer has that. Greer has that a little bit right when she thinks that she might be why, like, her mother is dead, right? Because she introduced him to who possibly could have been the killer. So, yeah. There's a. Oh man. God, that would be awful. Oh. Yeah, I know. Well, and I'm guessing in the case of Peggy DeChant. Like they probably called her husband and was like, "Hey, she's been attacked. She's going to the well." Hospital. Assuming we know where he's at, I mean, is he carrying a cell phone? Do we know? I mean, he, no, he might just wait till he showed up at the house. Like we don't know where he's at. It's not like he's at work or something. I mean, maybe that's he true. is. Maybe he's like, oh, yeah. Although it sounds like he was there and like ducked out to go. I don't know, meet his mistress or something, and it's going to be like at night. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, yeah. yeah when Fred comes home, whew, yeah, it's going to be a rough day for sure. Yeah, and also, where's their kid? Yeah, it's a good question. She makes a big deal about how she was putting the baby down because they apparently have a small child now because like when they when Catherine first shows up, it was like a little like a little toddler scooter like tipped over in the stairs and so she straightens it up and she comes in like, oh, sorry, I had to put my and then she's like, I'm afraid to even worry, you know, because she's worried about like if he comes back and like he's going to harm her, new, her, her actual child. Well, I mean, he's her child, too, but like her new child, the baby that I do want, is he going to try and harm him? So like, but where is that kid? Maybe, yeah, maybe Fred had the kid. Maybe Fred was with him, took him out from ice cream or something. I don't know. But, maybe, or maybe yeah. he's with grandma or something. Well, she went to the police station. She's just all she like ready to have her like Calgon take me away bath. And like, mm-hmm. where's the kid at? Yeah. Maybe we're not supposed to remember that. Uh, maybe just one of those things. So, yeah. 
Ooh, sidetrack, sidetrack, sidetrack. <laughs> All the sidetracks. Well, there are sidetracks that also aren't sidetracks. They're just things we've they're related. They're related the to the episode and they're good questions, you yeah. know. Yeah. Good questions. Good solid <laughs> questions. Yes. Speaking of which, question. What are you gonna write this episode? Yeah. That segue. Whew, yeah, that was good. It's funny because this one does have a lot of connections to irresistible, and we, we know that <laughs> I do not enjoy irresistible. It is not my favorite X-Files episode. Yes, neither of us like Irresistible. There are some differences in why we don't like it. Right. Um, we, we do have some crossover in why we don't like it, but also we do have some other some differences, yeah. reasons. Which we're kind we of outliers. Like it. it feels like most people in the fandom really do like that episode. Well, so that's I mean, one where we just diverge you know. completely, which it happens. You know, I'm also, I'm also a big fan of the X-Files, but sometimes I'm just, I'm a weirdo. I can't be helped if everyone else is wrong, so... <laughs> But I actually really enjoyed this episode. It was a complete contrast to the previous episode where I was just like bored and wanted it to stop. This one I was really compelled by. Like it's it's not like the most unpredictable, whatever crazy thing. It wasn't like, oh my God, twist. You know, it was a twist, but it wasn't like one of those twists where you talk about it for months because you're so surprised. But it was good. I thought it was really well done. I do feel bad for James, but obviously like... <laughs> don't agree with what he's doing i get it i feel bad for peggy too i feel like there's some stuff's going on there and that's not entirely fault. i obviously feel bad for the courts because that's oof, that's rough mm -hmm. yeah. But yeah it was really good i thought the mystery was compelling i thought the story was really compelling i was i was interested the whole time and unlike donnie faster james might be creepy but like i don't know i was also fascinated by his like quick to fake crying and stuff like i thought that was like I was like, what's going on with this guy? So I don't know. I was into it. I thought this episode was really good. I think I'm going to give it a seven. A seven. Okay. I was thinking you might go with an eight, but okay, seven. I, right. you know, I'm debating. I'm, I'm debating. I'm on that seven, okay. eight line. Well, the I'm only one sure you've given an eight to falls. so far is the pilot. So a seven might be more. I may be thinking eight because I'm thinking maybe one notch ahead. Right. Like for my own judgment kind of thing. Because I am going to go with an eight. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. Maybe I'm just again I, at the beginning. I mean that does that does mesh though because like you gave the pilot an eight, yeah. I gave it a nine. You gave this a seven, I gave it an eight. So there is, and we're kind of doing that a little bit, like eight six, eight seven, six five, six six, five three, eight seven. So yeah, we there's a little yeah. So I'm like just one above you on these. So. Yeah, when I do tend to like I've talked about this before in our X Files recaps and stuff. I feel like. I probably lowball things a little bit at the beginning because I'm just like stingy at first. And then at the end of the season, I'm like, wow, I was really so stingy stingy with my so ratings. Stingy? I don't need to be that stingy, so stingy? but I don't know. I Greasy don't know. and stingy. <laughs> Coming off great. Right. Coming off great in these episodes. All right. <laughs> Get to know way too much about me, Patreon listeners. Way too much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably more All than right. you want to. <laughs> There was one other thing that I want to just mention as an aside, and then we can we can wrap it up. So in the actually in the show credits, like the on screen, like you know, it come like we come back from the they do that thing, like you, you know, you get the you get the teaser and then you get the credits and you get your stars names, right? And then you come back and you're you've got the episode, and then like the the bigger people, right, get their names, like you know, like the 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 actress who plays Jordan gets her name there and like, you know belchers there and that kind of thing so one of the people who gets named in this one 
is the actor who plays Detective Teeple. Because like in previous episodes, like in The Judge, it was Giebelhaus and Teeple. They were like partners, right? And they were, you know, they, they went into the place to go find Bardell, right? And he escaped through the window. So they, they were like partners. In this episode, the actor is listed as like one of the main like guest stars. And then when you look up the episode online, he is listed as, you know, so-and-so played. Detective Teeple. He is not in this episode at all. I double, I went through it. I went through every part where there is police station stuff. It's like, is he in the background? He Teeple is not in this at all, and yet he is credited. Is so he credited in every episode? Is he always I don't think so. I would need to go, I would need to do a little, I'll need to do a little okay. outside research. So maybe so yeah. when we come back next week, I will have some information, or maybe I'll save it. But for that is weird because usually Maybe if he's someone's... credited when Giebelhouse is in the episode. Maybe. I also wonder, like, was he was he in the script and then they edited it and then that change didn't occur? Because Maybe. he is not in the episode at all, but yet he is, like, one of the main, like, credited people. Like, because he's not in the end credits. The end credits, you actually get the character's name. In the opening ones, you don't get the credit's name, right? You just get the actor and you have to kind of, like, sometimes you're like, ooh, who are they playing? Like, if you're not familiar, right? I mean, most of them are mm-hmm. recurring characters, so you kind of know. And then the internet helps you out because the internet will tell you. But yeah, he is credited on screen and in the internet credits for this episode. He is not in this episode at all. That's so funny. That's so weird because like if it were the opening like music credits where they don't really edit those and it doesn't like really they don't matter who them. appears. Yeah. That's one uh-huh. thing. But yeah, to have his name overlaid, that is really odd. I wonder if you're right, if maybe he was supposed to be in it. And then they just gave his lines to Giebel House because like he wasn't able to be there or something. And then yeah, they if they merged to them together, name. maybe somehow like, yeah. like we don't need both of them here. <laughs> we can just merge it and like they can, you know. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Yes, I don't know. I'll, I'll have to check that out and see like when he is. He doesn't have as many credits as Giebel House, so it's very possible that maybe this is what is happening. We we actually are banging it out and we're doing the, the research right now. Is that they were going to be like the partners and they realized, you know what? We could just merge these two into one character and they phased him out. It's entirely possible. Yeah. As they he, got to, as they at a certain got a point, you only need Evil so House many going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Cause at a certain point you only need so many people around Frank, right? If there's too many, mm-hmm. it's going to get really muddled and crowded and. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But I, cause I went through and checked and I could not find him anywhere. And also like if, even if he is just in the background, as like a non-speaking role one why would you bring in like an actor to just be in the background when you can just get like an extra to do that and like pay them a lower wage right mm-hmm. but then also like he is like credited like as being in the episode so it's just weird so i'm just wondering what's going on yeah i'll have to do, yeah, some, I'll have to do some checking on that i will find the answer or at least i'll <laughs> find what i think is the answer so Right, I think cool. I think that I think we may I think we may have hit on it. I would not be surprised if that was the case. Like if looking at things, he is just phased out because they end up as they figure out what to do with Giebel House, they're like, you know, we can just merge these two dudes into one and that gives us something for Giebel House to do. Like yeah. instead of trying to figure out like he's gonna say this, and then he's gonna say this, and then he's gonna say this, and he's gonna say this. Just they don't need to be two people. Right. So, yeah. All righty. Well, there you go. Possibly breaking news on the Millennium Front. <laughs> breaking Teeple news from 1996. Written. Let's just. People yeah, has been written out of the show. So we'll find out. Yeah. Yeah, totally. 
Well, thank you so much for listening and thank you for supporting us on Patreon. We really do appreciate it. We're glad you're here for Millennium Mondays. So it's not just us talking to our cats. Thank you for yeah. listening. I mean, my cats are in another room. So no. one of mine's in the other room. One of them is like they are ironically around. often banned from Black Cat Studios because, <laughs> well, one of them is usually chill. The other one likes to climb on everything. And then so they have to both be exiled because if I don't, if I only exile one, then that's going to cause all kinds of horrendous. Oh, yeah. No, you don't want to do that. That's when you get into all sorts of territorial issues and oof. Yes. Bad idea. And their mother's not home. So dad has just abandoned them in the living room (laughs) while he's in the closet. I think, I think, has their namesake on the door. But yeah. So KPS is going to be after me. So (laughs) I think that is key protection services for the listeners. We were mentioning earlier off air that. KPS was going to be called on Tori because Lauren right. needed a treat and was not. My, my cats had only so. had t- a meal and a snack and also a treat. Yeah, they'd only had noon. it was noon and they'd only had one breakfast and one treat and that was just a crime. And a snack. There was a them. snack in there plus yeah. some kibble for Billy because Lauren was really. I mean, how was a treat and a snack different? Well, because the snack is me getting locked to eat more food, more wet food. Uh, so Billy doesn't get very much. But Locke gets kind of a second breakfast. It's kind of a little snack, a little lunch. He's a hobbit. It's, it's supposed to be lunch, but it's early. But like, because he is very skinny, although I think he's gaining weight. I'm going to have, I mean, I'm, next time I go to the vet, we'll see. But like, he had some major health issues in 2020 and like continues to have chronic health problems, but was getting really skinny and losing weight for a really long time. And so he doesn't, he has to eat prescription food. And, and he hates it. Doesn't love it. He would rather eat Billy's food. It tastes food. like medicine. I mean, it's it's not so. the best. And so, like, you know, there's only three brands. and There's only so much you can do. So, like, I'll, I'll give him a little snack where I mix in maybe some other stuff. Don't tell the vet. So, <laughs> so he'll actually eat it in the middle of the day. And, yeah, because I'm just trying to get him to not waste away into nothing because he's not eating enough food. But he does seem to be eating a lot better now than he was like even just six months ago. So that's good. Yeah. So you guys now know that we are both great and awful cat parents. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we do what we do. We're doing our so best. We're doing our best. We love they our They're asking us what pravity is. And we're like, oh, fuck. I, don't know. I was like, how do I explain this to my cat? Yeah. yeah. We love our boys. We do the best we can for them. Yeah. Yeah, we love you. We do love you. Sorry, we already tried to end this and then I started rambling about my cat's story in my life. Yeah, I kind of brought it up by referencing something that we talked about (laughs) off air. Okay. I'll come out of the radio off air. We were talking about something. (laughs) So anyway, I'm so awful. I don't know what I'm doing. All right. Bye. (laughs) I Want to Rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded in collaboration with Black Cat and Orange Tuxedo Studios. Episode production design and editing is by Lazy and Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz, and The Truth is What We Make of It by The Aquarius. Our premium feed is where you can find all of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes covering television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like these bonus episodes, tell a friend about our Patreon page. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us for the next Millennium Monday with episode eight, The Well-Worn Lock. And we'll try to figure out if the the truth truth is is still out there. there.
Oh dear. That was not one of our better endings. <laughs> or was it one of our better endings? I mean, maybe. Who I knows? Know. I mean, what are the qualifications? What is the criteria? So that be is the criteria or are the criteria? I guess are the criteria. Okay, fine. Whatever. Criteria is plural, I think. I guess it, uh, you know, I don't know. I think R sounds right, but I could be wrong. All right. 